Hello, I'm Trent Brown. You're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. On today's show, we speak to Andrew Garten about his upcoming documentary film Ocean in a Drop, which explores issues related to internet access and digital literacy in rural India. So Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. So we've just seen some selections from Ocean in a Drop at the Australia India Institute. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the film and how the project got started? Well, Ocean in a Drop looks at the impact that broadband is having on rural and tribal communities, and it does so through the lens of the Digital Empowerment Foundation and and largely through a a sort of ethnographic approach. Um, I was approached by Osama Manza, the founder of the... uh, of the Digital Empowerment Foundation in 2014 in Barcelona, of all places, where I was screening um, another film of mine, and uh, people were suitably impressed by by that work, and uh, he was um, keen to see whether I was interested in, in directing a film about the Digital Empowerment Foundation. I wasn't so interested in, in a film about the foundation, but I was interested in the impact that the foundation was having. And um, so it was through their efforts that um, that I was able to get to India and spend five months there producing this film with two camera crews and a videographer and a translator and um, and uh, a few other um, fascinating people who um, joined us on, on on the trip to document the entire entire process we did four shoots over uh, a large part of the um, the northeast of of the country and um, came back with uh, well over a hundred interviews of which you know, I've used 64 to dilute into um, what uh, what we saw this evening. Right. So to turn to the issues, I mean, uh, could you give us an idea of what the levels of digital literacy and internet access are in, in rural India? Well, it's patchy to non-existent, patchy at best and completely um, uh, bereft of technology in many of the places that we went to. In fact, some of the places that we visited uh were gaining access to broadband where people had barely heard a radio, let alone seen a TV. Mobiles, or handies as they're often referred to, they um, were extremely prevalent um, where there was work. And uh, where there wasn't a great deal of work, um, the reach in terms of IT was, uh, was fairly bleak, if you want to put it that way. But um, the organisation or the foundation sees a challenge wherever there is or an opportunity wherever there is despair or wherever, wherever the greatest need is. And their feeling is that, um, that the areas where internet is um, completely non-existent, irrespective of whether there are handsets available, um, they, they will go there and they will... Um, manifest the means to provide the infrastructure to enable access to to information. So if we could just step back a bit, what are some of the implications of poor uh, digital literacy, poor internet access for development and people's livelihoods? Well, the the title of my talk is Right to Know. Um, And I use that term because what I became aware of was that people in those outlying areas had little knowledge about the rights that they have access to. So without access to 
um, even a modicum of, 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 of um, communications. They have no knowledge of their right to a pension, for instance, let alone um, a girl's right to a pushbike that the government provides rural and tribal communities uh, so that girls can attend schools. So without that kind of um, even basic level of, of access, there is a huge chunk of opportunity that um, the people are missing out on. Mm. So knowledge is power, so to speak. Well, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it not only informs, but it also uh, alleviates the increase in poverty that, uh, that one sees um, on the outer rim of, uh, of Delhi's, well, of India's um, urban sprawl. Mm. I mean, one of the fascinating topics that was covered in your film is just the extraordinary lengths that people will go to in order to get quality broadband access in, in India. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, well, in one particular area, a uh, place called Mamoni, in Baran, which was largely a, um, uh, a, a tribal community, originally forest dwellers called the Saria. Uh, about 30 years ago, um, a couple of folks arrived from, uh, from Delhi and set up a small organization to, um, to, one, find ways and means to relieve the tribal communities from the bonded labor that they had found themselves um, um, tithe to, which was uh, extremely unfortunate and, and quite a terrible situation. And secondly, they realised that education, that there was a paucity of education, so they started to set up some schools. A few years ago, they met Osama Manza, who was the founder of the Digital Empowerment Foundation, who um, at that stage was rolling out these community information resource centres across the rural area. And he thought that um, Mamoni would be a great place for one of these centres, basically a, a computer access centre with some basic um, digital literacy training. But uh, they also started talking about wireless and um, the, the folks at Mamoni um, realised that uh, that they could um, increase the capacity for, for their, their teaching model by establishing a broad rural wireless network but the financial means to establish the infrastructure wasn't readily available. So they started building towers. They needed communications towers. They needed very tall towers, 10 metres high. And uh, these towers were initially built from junk. So um, Motilayaji, who was the founder of um, the Sunkalp Foundation, literally travelled with a, a trailer and, and collected old pipes and bits of rusted metal and found a local welder to, um, I mean, these are people with no engineering skills whatsoever, to, uh, to join these pipes together and eventually they constructed the tower. But then they had to, they had to get it upright. Mm. It was all well and good lying on the ground, but uh, they had to get it upright. And then they, um, they managed to find a... Uh, a, a building site nearby where a crane was working and they convinced the crane driver to help them. And uh, But the only people around to help guide the um, the tower into position was a local um, girls' school. So um, all these young women joined in to help push and guide the tower in place whilst the uh, the crane driver manoeuvred this um, this junk tower as we call it into into position so this is this is a community that has um, absolutely no um, literacy in terms of um, access to communications 
So having that tower installed and subsequent additional towers at 35-kilometre um, distances in the various different villages, they not only had access to broadband internet, but they suddenly had access to video conferencing. So for the first time, um, communities were able to communicate to each other because they, they didn't travel that distance, but they could communicate to each other through that network. And the first um, community members who participated in the video conferencing were kids. Mm. And so every day the kids would uh, would connect to this to, to the network across the villages and start singing songs with each other and sharing stories. And one of the remarkable outcomes of that was that many of these kids were from a variety of different castes, but the castes were completely diluted once they were online. They had no means to know who or where they were in their station of life. Mm. And that started to permeate the, uh, the classrooms through the uh, communication information resource centres that, um, that were being established in those villages. So from a junk tower to an open source video conferencing system to um, a castless classroom, um, it was in, in, in a matter of um, two and a half, three years, was a remarkable outcome. And the ripple effect is still yet to be fully realised. Mm. Well, a remarkable story. So you actually see the internet breaking down some of those hierarchies that have traditionally divided people. Indeed. And, and in some instances, intentionally so. So we went to, in that particular area, we went to visit two villages uh, and both those villages, the uh, tutors, who were young people who had grown up in that area and were also taught in the um, Community Information Resource Centres or CIRCs, they had very specific goals around dilution of caste because as far as they were concerned, was one person said to me, the environment doesn't discern between one tree and another, so why should we? Mm. So these are people who have a large um, connection to the forest. There are no more forests there, but they still have these traditions and they still have the stories and they still have a connection to the land, whether it exists in one form or another, those are still there. So they still use those cultural linkages to permeate the um, more contemporary environment that they find themselves in. An excellent example of how the caste is diluted in the classroom is we have an earthenware water pot and every child drinks of that pot. But if that pot was at home, only some kids would have access to the water and the others would have to drink from another mm, earthenware pot that. elsewhere. Mm. Um, some of the parents don't even enter the grounds of those uh, those centres because of the concerns that they have. Um, but the children, it's it's open slather. Different story. It's a different story. And and curiously, um, the parents in some of those places they allow it to happen because they see opportunities for their children that they didn't have themselves. So even though they may have their own individual turmoil around um, these uh, caste traditions, uh, some are less disposed to imposing that on their children because they can see the opportunities now Mm. afforded them. In making any documentary film, there's always going to be some logistical challenges, but I imagine that those must have been really compounded in making and in the kind of places where you've been working. So have you found that shooting this documentary has been a challenging process? One of the most uh, 
challenging aspects of, of, of the production was the number of dialects that we had to deal with. So I wasn't aware, and much of the crew, much of the Indian crew, weren't aware of the number of dialects that we would encounter. Right. And we were just fortunate that we had a chap from the foundation who came along not necessarily to be the translator, but he ended up be, being the translator because he was capable of, of understanding and translating in a wide variety of um, Hindi dialects, uh, which became invaluable. And that was quite a... Well, we ended up with over 100 interviews, over four shoots, um, spread out over five months. Mm. And, uh, and it took a year to translate at least 64. So we cherry-picked 64 interviews that I really wanted to, uh, to research and analyse those um, transcripts of the film. It took a year to work through all of that material. Right. Um, and we hit a lot of barriers because of the, um, the dialect situation and we only had one person who could do that work. So, uh, mm. so, so even within Hindi-speaking areas, you found a, a variety of dialects spoken there? Indeed, we did. Indeed, we did, particularly in, in Betia, where it was um, much uh, more complex, according to, um, to um, the Delhi crew. Um, they didn't understand what was going on, but uh, Ravi grew up in the area, and uh, so for him it was, uh, it was sort of common, common knowledge mm. um, to some degree. But, uh, um, yeah, the, the, the translation process was... Uh, was was quite an extraordinary um, effort, and I have to commend the um, the staff at the foundation who chipped in to to bring it all together because it was it was lengthy, and not only did every one of those sixty four interviews have to be interviewed, uh, sorry, translated, but they had to be transcribed and they had to be subtitled because I couldn't begin editing without the subtitles, which has made the editing process even more perplexing. Um, uh, but it also was a um, extraordinary reveal once the transcript started to come through because the it was it was obviously quite difficult for Ravi who was translating on location to translate contexts as as clearly as they came through the translations and the transcripts. So there was a lot that was that was. Um, um, overlooked, possibly due to the complexity and and the the um, the, the environment that we that we were in. So there was so much more information that people had shared that I hadn't been aware of at the time that we were um, we were actually um, casting the uh, the interviews. Right. So for people who are interested in seeing the documentary, when's it likely to come out, and uh, how can people be kept up to date? The film should be out um, late twenty sixteen. I'm heading towards a fine cut from uh, mid-August onwards. We have a website up and running already. It's uh, oceaninadropfilm.com, and uh, you'll also find a Facebook page. Um, just do a search for Ocean in a Drop, and, uh, and you'll get to the very same page that we are publishing our um, Great. updates to. I mean, really such an exciting project and we'll look forward to seeing the final product. Uh, Andrew Garten, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure to share my stories. Okay, that's the show. Thank you for listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. Bye for now.